was actually having a little um, feeling of bittersweetness because the energy already feels different in here. In our beginning is our end. On this last night of our retreat, of our time together, I want to follow on a little bit from what Kamala was talking about last night and how Kamala was talking, which is about the big picture of what we're doing here. She used as her frame uh, Dana Seela Bhavana, these three pillars or foundations of our uh, life of practice, very expansive view of practice. I want to talk tonight more about our meditation practice. And the theme of the talk, or the title of the talk, is Patterns of Practice. And as we've said again and again and again, what we're hoping to convey to you here on this retreat are a set of skills that you can use in your life and in your practice. Not wanting or hoping, directing you to have certain experiences, but rather understand this training that we're undertaking and how to do that for yourself, this training in samatha or tranquility meditation. Because training you can take with you. Training is something that you can integrate and um, have access to. Experiences come and go. They're conditioned like any other thing in this realm, and they will pass, definitely. Can't take them in your luggage home with you. But training you can. Training is a skill, and a skill you can continue to develop. And I always say, if I had to choose for what you, any one of you, between having some rapturous, pity-filled experience and really learning this training, I'd choose the training any time, because that will serve you in an ongoing way in your practice. And the other actually can be a great distraction. We often say that the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is to have a good experience, because what do we do? Oh, that. That means good. That means I did something. How do I do that? I was wearing my lucky blue shirt, and it was the 10.30 sitting, and I sat like... Anyway. So... Training more valuable. Uh, there's this very uh, famous saying, which I'm going to reframe because I'm a vegetarian. If you give a person a potato, they can eat for a day, but you show them how to grow potatoes, they can eat for a lifetime. And it's the same here. It's not like let's gather all of our effort and energy towards a particular experience, but really understand what is this process that we're embarking on and how does it work? How do we? do this. And so the theme has been, how do we collect and unify the mind? What is it like to stabilize the mind, to seclude the mind, and to give it this focus on particularly the breath, however we were accessing it, but this steadiness of attention around the breath. Because what we often see from many students is, they think they're doing vipassana, And they're actually doing samatha meditation. They're holding on to the breath as their preferred object. And as other stuff arises, they'll kind of go to it. But there's an underlying attitude that that's a distraction. I'll deal with it as long as it's here, but boy, is it annoying and aggravating. And, you know, if I can just get back to my breath, that's good meditation. And it's not. 
There's a lot of aversion and attachment in that, and there's a real misunderstanding of how to do this practice. So what we're hoping that you understand from this retreat is really how to um, train the mind on the breath, how to really focus on the breath, really know what that's like, as I said, to seclude the mind, collect and unify around the breath, and then how to completely let go. And, you know, we didn't have much time to explore that, but hopefully you got a sense of that, um, how, how to use the breath and then what it's like to let go and open fully to the six sense doors. There's a, a type of practice we teach on pretty much every retreat we call choiceless awareness or choiceless attention. I've heard my husband, Guy Armstrong, who's a meditation teacher, call it the crown jewel of vipassana. He thinks it's that um, useful a practice where we completely unanchor the attention from choosing any one object and we let it go to what's predominant or what arises, what, what, what is in the field of these six sense doors. And there's a moment-to-moment connecting that can be very uh, powerful and even concentrating, but the objects are always changing. This is... Uh, the end of the spectrum, as I said, on the, on the first night as we gather together, there's this slider bar of practices. On one end is vipassana or insight practice, where we're really open to the six sense doors, and the underpinning is, is an inquiry or insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. One end. The other end what we've been doing here, shamatha practice, simple practice, choosing the breath, everything else, not now, just breath. So kind of the two ends of the spectrum. And I think I said, for most of us, on most retreats we're on, we're kind of somewhere in the middle, which is actually a good place to be. It's a very skillful place to be. But as I said, I think a lot of people don't realize the skill necessary to move that slider bar one direction or the other. They don't have that training or understanding. And I'm hoping, we're hoping from this retreat, you have at least a sense of that, of how to do that for yourself. And when it's wise to be more on one end or the other. If you're really scattered and, 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 and lost, really to simplify. When the mind gets steady, to open up. But know with clarity that that's what you're doing and choosing that out of wisdom. And within that, you know, using the breath as a support, but not hanging on to it um, without clarity, not hanging on to it and thinking that other things are an obstacle or a disturbance. So this is really, again, what we hoped we've been pointing to uh, in these 10 days. And I saw this... um, process for myself, as I think I said in another talk, you know, uh, after many years of practice, I did about 10 years of mainly concentration practices, different forms, and and doing it in different ways. Um, And one retreat after I'd kind of explored the terrain uh, over a number of long retreats, I decided to do a a six-week retreat where I do two weeks of samadhi, samatha practice, and then a month of insight practice. So that's what I embarked upon, you know, once and just probably get a sense of this, that this practice as you explore the terrain gets a, 
a little easier. I don't want to say easy, but you sort of know how to navigate it, uh, the terrain. So I did about two weeks of practice, got fairly settled and quiet, and then the day came when I was, I, it was just my decision, you know, I would open up to Vipassana. And I can remember the feeling, it was like, I had my warm, cozy nest, and someone wanted to throw me out of the nest into the windstorm. And it, you know, it was like, it's so peaceful and quiet and it seemed like there was this chaotic world out there that I just wasn't ready for um, and so there was a little bit of clinging I guess you could say to the quiet of, of the Samatha practice um, but I'd made a commitment I'd made an intention I wanted to follow through and it was actually really instructive it was quite delightful to shift the focus. Instead of being wild and chaotic, because the mind had been trained and it had a a cultivation of some of these beautiful qualities that we've been speaking about, there was actually both an openness and an interest, but a steadiness and a calm. The calm was quite developed. And I was actually able to be with these changing experiences with a lot of equanimity, but with also some, you could almost say, delight. I think would be a a good word. Um, And I could really feel the play of the seven factors of awakening that Pat spoke about the other night and kind of explore those as energies because the mind was clear enough and steady enough to do that. I'd never been able to kind of connect with them as clearly as I I could after that practice. So this, and we keep saying, this is what we do concentration practice for, not in and of itself, but to know how to use. We need to know how to collect and unify the mind, if that's what we're doing. And so hopefully you have a sense, a taste of what that's like, even if it's been for a few moments. Some of you have come in and said, just a few moments, but so sweet or so powerful or so uh, inspiring to have that sense. And hopefully seen also that this mind that's collected and unified isn't tight, isn't narrow, isn't constricted, right? It can have a great deal of spaciousness and and pliability, openness to it, so can uh, know that for ourselves. And again, know what the supports are for ourselves to actually develop that. So all of you hopefully have had a taste or two or three or more of that and and have developed a deeper level of calm. You know, and again, we can be judgmental, not enough compared to what, compared to who, but I guarantee compared to when you came. <laughs> and I can say that because I know if you came to Spirit Rock and spent 10 days in silence and didn't do any particular practice, that would happen. So... <laughs> I know that to be the case. Take away the cell phones and the agitation, it'll happen. You add the, the intention of this practice, and I think it's, def- it's definitely happened for everyone. So we know how to do that for ourselves and what that feels like. We know that uh, in our samatha practice, we focus on stillness, on resting. In our vipassana practice, open up to change, to changing objects, as Kamala was talking about last night and this morning, to this fullness of experience at the six sense doors, this openness where nothing can really be an obstacle and nothing held outside 
of the practice, everything in this field of meditation. And as we've been talking about in the last day or so, the, the, the um, pointer or the, um, what our insight practice reveals is, is its insight into the nature of reality. What's the nature of reality? The three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and not-self. These can be challenging insights to have, to see that everything is changing, fleeting. And because of that unreliable, we can't look to these conditioned things for permanent lasting happiness. And that we're not in control in the way we would like to be or even think we are. So these can be very unsettling insights to have if the mind is wavering. But the mind that has the steadiness from the samatha practice can stay with that. It's a bit like you know, riding a bucking horse or something. It has that resilience to stay until the horse calms down and quietens, and then there can be this alignment. And we've developed through the practice a lot of confidence or trust in our capacity. And so even as these new and more challenging experiences come, that comes with us, sadha, to put our place one's heart upon to be able to work with difficult experiences in the body. Again, you know, when, if the mind is untrained or is wobbly and we get discomfort in the body, it, we just veer off. We can't take it. The, the concentrated mind is able to stay and be soft around that, not again have a rigidity. And the same with our emotional life. When the mind is untrained and doesn't have this stability, we're so easily taken by our emotions, into reactivity and into all of our hopes and fears, the wildness of what can be an emotional life. With the samatha, we can actually steady with the emotions and explore them and begin to understand them and uh, know their nature. And then the mind. We've given a few pointers for bringing awareness of the mind itself, both the contents of the mind, the thoughts, the moods, the emotions, but then even this quality of awareness. Very ineffable, not easy to point to, easy to get lost in, slip off. The steady mind is able to open to that. So samatha, the stabilizing quality, helps us in uh, our vipassana practice. And so that can be our foundation. We use the steadiness of mind because any type of meditation, anything you undertake in this field, requires some degree of concentration. And so we start to explore this flow, and it can be a beautiful, very responsive, again, art. I talked about the art of meditation the other night, intuitive flow between collecting, unifying, secluding, and then opening. And again, we don't do that once, collect and unify once, and then we're good to go. It's a, it's a constant um, reinforcing or restabilizing in response to the different conditions in a practice period, in a sitting, in a walking, in a day, in a retreat. Always responsive. And these other factors that we've talked about, the jhana factors, are not just factors of jhana. Um, the vitaka vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata, the um, aiming, sustaining, rapture, 
sweetness, contentment, and then the one-pointedness, they're not just um, mental factors that get developed in samatha or necessary for samatha and for jhana. They're actually developed in any um, intensive meditation practice and are useful in any intensive meditation practice. So again, some of what you may have explored this week is just a little familiarity with these terms and perhaps some direct experience of some of them. Really helpful for whatever um, we're doing. And so on other retreats, you might notice using those. Again, the only two we can sort of use really are vitaka vichara, the aiming, sustaining. But through our recognition and our understanding, we can can incline towards or invite or know how to support and nourish these other factors to develop. And and they can bring a sweetness to our practice that's, that's so helpful. And this whole attitude that we've been hopefully ingraining in you of relaxation, of contentment. This isn't, even though it's essential for summer to practice, not only, right? It's really, you'll see, so valuable in any meditation type of practice that we do. So we start to understand this for ourselves. This is what I want to talk about tonight. Start to understand these different mental factors, different training, and learn how to use them skillfully for ourselves. Because most of us, if not all of us, have a tendency to look outward for um, advice, for instruction, for affirmation. And of course, we do need all of that, not to say we don't, but we need to find the right balance there. It's so often, especially on retreats like this and towards the end of the retreat, there's many people who come in and describe in great detail this amazing experience they have, and then the question always is at the end, what was that? And my answer always is, I don't know. (laughs) I wasn't there. And, but the truth is, unless we as teachers are really tracking you um, and having a conversation about what's being developed, we can't really know. You know, we can have a sense of different factors and different experiences, but there's so many um, variations of this theme that, you know. But the main thing is it doesn't matter. It's more what impact does it have? What does it teach you? The other question we always get is, is that normal? <laughs> Is that okay? Basically, is that okay? And then my answer always is, oh, yes. <laughs> and it almost wouldn't matter what you came in and told me. I'd say, oh, yes. <laughs> because truth be told, it's a wild and amazing world in there. <laughs> and all kinds of amazing things can happen. So, But mainly I'm talking about that. Um, yes, we do, we do need instruction and advice and affirmation, but we can't rely on that. And ultimately, we have to trust our own experience and wisdom. I, I in my last talk, I talked about um, collecting cartoons on meditation. There's a whole subgenre of cartoons on meditation called the guru subgenre, which you can, I've got a whole collection of. And in the guru subgenre, there's a few, there's always these uh, characteristics. There's a mountaintop, which is a triangle with a little wavy line, means there's snow on it. There's usually a cave. Um, and there's a guru who, in everyone I've seen pretty much, has been a man, and he's got a white beard and a little loincloth, right? The, that's the setting for the guru. And then different things happen. 
So in this one, there's the guru, all those requisites. But this guru has a big flat screen TV. He's in a recliner with a ball, baseball cap on, a beer in one hand and the remote in the other and a bowl of popcorn or something. And there's two seekers. One's going down and one's coming up. They always have a backpack. And the one going down is looking a little disgruntled and he says to the other, I hope you like sports metaphors. <laughs> Gurus come in many flavors. Anyway, I offer that mainly, you know, we do have that idea, oh, there's someone out there who can tell me what to do. And then if I do it, problem solved, right? Or, you know, so many times we, get, we, we offer some uh, instruction or suggestion. Why didn't you tell me that before? That was so helpful. And we're like, I think, we did. <laughs> I think we did, but you just weren't ready to hear it. I mean, and I'm, when I'm saying you, I know I'm in that camp too. We're, we're always looking for that thing that's going to do it. And the Buddha's teaching is be a lamp unto yourself. So this shift, again, what I'm wanting to highlight tonight is seeing that there's training that you've been involved in here, that you are getting trained and you can do this training and understanding. There's these two lovely words that the Buddha used, and we often chant if you've ever done a monastic retreat, ehipasiko opanayiko. Ehipasiko is E-H-I-P-A-S-S-I-K-O, and opanayiko is O-P-A-N-A-Y-I-K-O. Ehipasiko is come and see for yourself. Basically, don't believe the texts, don't just believe that even the teachings. Come, come and see for yourself, sit here and practice. And opanayako means uh, it's onward leading. And some people translate it inward leading, meaning this is a practice to do for yourself and it, it has the capacity uh, to free our hearts and minds, that you can develop this training for yourself. Ehipasiko opanayako. This is what the Buddha talked about over and over again. Come and, come and see. Check it out for yourself. Don't, don't just believe the teachers, believe the teachings. You need teachers and teachings. We need the context of the training. But the ultimate um, thing is doing it for ourselves. And the Buddha also talked about four kinds of student. See which one you might be, or four modes of progress. There's the student for whom progress is fast and there's no pain. Students where it's fast and a lot of pain. Students where it's slow but no pain. And students where it's slow and there's a lot of pain. <laughs> Should we do a vote? <laughs> we usually think we're, we're in the last category, right? This is so difficult and everyone else is, mm-hmm, and I, can oh, it's hard and... I know I put myself in that last category all the time and, and can be very judgmental. You know, where's the insight? Where's the pity? Where's the, where's the goodies that, that I thought I could get? Because we, we're so judgmental. And I, I very much my frame, you know, I'd hear people crying in the meditation hall or talking about lights or whatever they were talking about. It's like, where? Not, you know, not me. I'm just kind of plodding along. You know, I had some equanimity, but I also had a lot of boredom, you know, it's just not much happening. But I have to say that, you know, 
it really was, it took time for my practice to deepen. It especially took longer retreats. It took intensive metta practice. And it really took the samatha practice, the samadhi practices, to actually shift that experience and, and my relationship to myself. Um, and I so that's why I teach this retreat, because I so value how inspiring it was for me, how transformative it was for me. It really gave me a lot of faith in this practice. Um, it gave me a, a connection to the lineage. And I, I've said this to some people, it's like I was reading a 2,600-year-old instruction manual, and it spoke to me. I never knew what the next page was going to reveal, but there was a sense of being on a path that had been trod by countless millions of people before, that I wasn't making this up, and that there was an unfolding that I could trust and my teachers could, could guide me. And to see for myself that the mind could be trained. I think I used this quote in my last talk, something about, you know, the untrained mind is worse for you than your worst enemy, the trained mind better than your best friend. To actually feel the mind be trained and have it be responsive, again, was life-transforming for me. It just gave me so much confidence and faith. And to to train it towards metta, towards loving-kindness, and train it towards concentration. And I really do feel that this practice does something physiologically. I have no proof for that. But, I mean, they are doing these MRIs where they see these long-term meditators have different kind of brains. But I just feel it, you know, that something shifts for us as we really steep in, in this kind of practice. So these grooves get created and we can feel ourselves on a path of training. So helpful. And so the Buddha called this the gradual training. It wasn't the fast and no pain training, it was the gradual training. Um, and, it, it, and the thing about it is, it only goes in one direction once we embark on this path. It doesn't say how quickly we get there, but it only goes in one direction. And there's this beautiful uh, quote from the Majjhima Just as the river Ganges inclines towards the sea, slopes towards the sea, flows towards the sea, and extends all the way to the sea, so too the Buddha's assembly, with its homeless ones and its householders, inclines towards Nibbāna, slopes towards Nibbāna, flows towards Nibbāna and extends all the way towards Nibbāna. Nibbāna meaning freedom. And I love that it says the homeless ones, the monastics, the renunciates, and the householders. We're on the same path going in that direction. So this is what we can start to know and trust, that, that there's a training that we can undertake and this is the direction it goes. And once we undertake this training, we can start to see how it works. Again, it's like getting, getting in behind the machinery. I can't think of what a good, you know, lifting up the hood of a car. These days you can't, right? It's like all boxes and computers. It used to be you could pull things out and measure them and look at them. I mean, I couldn't, but people could. But <laughs> These days, not, you know, there's no backyard mechanics, right? It's all plug-in and computers. But anyway... Something like that. We, are, we can understand how the thing works and how to adjust it so it actually performs in a way that's useful for us. So we can start to see patterns and themes from our own practice, 
but certainly from the teachings. And it's a, a lovely shift that happens when you start to read these texts from the Buddha, written in the now tran- great translations into English, the Pali Canon, as we call it, um, where they don't just become sort of dry, dusty discourses. They're teaching instructions. They're manuals for practice. And you can, if you read them in that way, you have a completely different relationship to them. I always remember Joseph Goldstein, my dear teacher and colleague, saying there was one particular phrase he always loved, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Shorthand, just nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And he said, I love that. You know, it's so important. He'd teach on it, and he'd share it, and he'd reflect on it. And then one day he realized, oh, it's an instruction. It's not just a nice idea. It's something we should be putting into practice in our meditation and certainly in our lives. And since that time, he has taken that as his main meditation instruction. So if you ask him what his practice is, he'll say, awareness and non-clinging. Noticing the clinging and letting go from that instruction from the text. So I spoke the other night about uh, one pattern that we hopefully have um, seen is that the proximate cause for the deepening of meditation, I'm going to refer a little bit to the list I handed out, but you don't need it because I'll just talk about it. Um, But the proximate cause for concentration in the list of transcendent dependent origination and in these other lists is happiness, is sukha. And that central in most of the meditation lists one or more of these beautiful qualities of heart, of rapture, or um, joy, or faith, or tranquility, or gladness. Always these very positive qualities as kind of the supports for our practice. Um, So that's really important for us to get, that we can't just sort of dive to the deeper states and bypass some of these more um, foundational kind of practices or or experiences that they're so important. So that's one pattern that we can see in this very instructional for us, that contentment, ease, relaxation are the supports for concentration. But the other pattern that I see often in these lists and we've t- I think I talked a little bit about this, or maybe it was just in an evening, that there are often these what you might call foundational practices or the engines of practice. They're the ones we can do with some intentionality. Perhaps have some, and control is too strong a word, but as I said, certainly some intentionality. We can put our minds to them and engage with them. And the ones we've been talking around, um, and so, uh, sorry, to say, ones we can intention around, and that they create the conditions for later factors, but those later factors aren't so much in our control. We can't make rapture arise, right? Or even tranquility. We can create the supportive conditions, but we have to work with these foundation mental factors for that to develop. And so the ones we've been talking about again and again, vitaka and vichara, aiming and sustaining the engines of um, the jhana factors. And it's just that simple process of connecting with our object and sustaining the attention. I mean, if you kind of think it, it's, it's sort of obvious, but for me it was so clarifying to realize that was something I could do and that very doing of it 
was onward leading, was onward leading. Um, and we you need to use these in any practice, any, anything we undertake and want to develop a skill in. These factors of vitaka and vichara are useful and will be necessary. As someone was talking today about how they were like magic tools that they could use for sloth and torpor. And it's true, they're the antidotes for sloth and torpor. Um, if we have that clarity of, instead of being in a fog, no, really have that clarity of connecting and then sustaining can really work with that. But I also responded that a big part of what also made the difference in relieving or dispelling the sloth and torpor was the intention to use the tool you had. You can have all kinds of wonderful tools, but if you don't use them, they might as well not exist, right? So we have to know the tools and know how to use them, when to apply them. If you look at the seven factors of awakening, um, the, the foundational practices are sati, mindfulness, that's got to be there all the way through. Dhamma vichaya, investigation or interest, or I also like intimacy. We can choose to do that, to get closer, to get more curious, to get interested. So that's something that we can bring some sense of development to. And then viria, energy. Again, you know, control is a strong word. It's not like we can just choose to have energy. But we know what it's like to bring that to bear, to, to arouse energy, to, to, you know, the things that we might do to balance out sloth and torpor. We can apply those with intention. And then the other aspects are more developmental out of that. The, the pity and the tranquilly pasadi and then even the concentration. So that's a pattern that we can see, that there are these factors that we have some, we can, we can cultivate with some intention. And then the other pattern that we can see is these um, foundational practices usually lead to some a heightened experience, some energetic expression. So again, the jhana factors are classic in this pity, uh, rapture or absorption, often very energetic in its expression. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. So it kind of has this bell curve. We do the, the work, the foundation, then this experience happens, and then this is also instructional. What ha- it doesn't keep going up, Right it subsides into more tranquil, still, and sublime, subtle experiences. This is a really important pattern for us to know for ourselves and in our practice. Again, we've been saying this, the movement from complexity to simplicity, preferring stillness to movement, to agitation, to restlessness. So this calming Um, that happens after the energizing factors. You know, we need some calming for the energizing factors uh, and especially experiences like pity and other ones to uh, be aroused. But always from those energetic experiences, there's there's a calming, a a simplifying that happens. Uh, Because often as we deepen in practice, and we come to some degree of stillness or we've had some energetic experiences, whatever might have happened, the question always is, what do I do now? Basically, how do I make this more or better? What's the next thing? And my answer usually is nothing. Or at least keep doing what you were doing. 
that's what is onward leading. We don't want to try and get in there too much and fix and change and, you know, engage and, and manipulate. Trust the practice. Trust um, what's happening. And that's part of the faith. It's also one of these foundational uh, experiences that are so important. We can see this pattern in one of the ones that's on this list called Transcendent Dependent Origination. I'll sometimes give a whole talk on this um, teaching on this retreat or longer retreats because it's such a beautiful description of the whole arc of practice. And it's very associated with um, the wheel of dependent origination or the teaching on dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, don't need to translate that, dependent origination, um, which is this cycle that describes how um, from ignorance we do all of the things that cause more suffering and we just get lost on that wheel. Depend, a transcendent dependent origination takes off from the same suffering, but instead of going to more ignorance, the next factor is faith, is sadha. And as Ajahn Chah says, he's got a great quote, there's the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering, and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The kind of suffering that leads to search or defining the path, as in the Eightfold Path, is the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering and that leads to faith. We're on a path. So there's that shift that's so important to faith. And then faith leads to joy, pomoja. Again, a lot from a sense of being on a path and knowing that there's an end, that it's possible to end suffering, that suffering can be eased. So pomoja, rapture, pity, tranquility, pasadi, happiness, sukha, then to concentration, these beautiful qualities. And then concentration leads to insight, yata, buta, nyanadasana, this knowledge and vision of things as they are. It's a, a long way and a complicated way of saying insight basically into the three characteristics, things as they are, reality. Um, But this knowledge and vision mean it's, again, not just an idea, not just a concept, but a deep and felt experience of the three characteristics, a deep penetration into that. And so this is, again, an example of how the concentrated mind just penetrates into the nature of reality. From that penetration, there's more, you know, insight isn't the end in this. Insight leads to this uh, experience of nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A. And that's a Pali word. It used to be translated as revulsion or disgust. It's like when you see what samsara is like, oh, I don't want any of that. But when you hear that revulsion or disgust, like who wants that? That's joy, faith, gladness, and then. But Bhikkhu Bodhi and Andy Olensky, um, who's a, a scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, actually have looked into this word and said what nibbida actually means is disenchantment, breaking the spell the spell of delusion that lets us think there's something out there that's going to bring us happiness. And that's a much more um, accurate rendition of the word nibida than revulsion or disgust. Andy actually has a great article on this where he says, nibida most literally means something like without finding. 
He says, there is a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone and thus turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone. But when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out in disgust. That's Nibida. So we've talked a lot about the trained mind allowing us choice, you know, and being responsive. This, not that. The breath, not our fantasies and planning and papancha. And I've said this to a few people. It's kind of like we're at this, you know, great buffet, like they have in some hotels or whatever, you know. There's this great buffet of food. And there's a bowl of, or a plate of cut, whatever, delicious fruit. You're choosing the fruit. It's delicious, it's luscious, but, you know, there's pastries and cream and dairy and eggs and whatever, you know, whatever else you might delight in, but you're choosing the fruit, right? It's, it's beautiful, it's nourishing, it's luscious, but there's a little bit of a sense of, oh, over there, <laughs> maybe nicer. So at first it feels like a sacrifice or renunciation to just seclude the sense doors like we've been doing. But after a while, keeping in mind this nibida, you're still at the same buffet. No, you're at a buffet, not the same buffet. The bowl of fruit is delicious. And what the other offerings are are Pop-Tarts and Twinkies. <laughs> I never eat either of those, but they... They're the ones that, right, you put them on the shelf and three years later they still look exactly the same. So renunciation um, at first feels like a penance, right? Here's another cartoon. That'd be funny. This is Hagar the Horrible who include, you know, the Viking one, the guy with the little horns and the beard, where he has a guru subgenre in the cartoon. So someone wrote it out. Hagar is climbing a very steep mountain. In the first frame, you see him going up, laboring away. So there he is going to the... In the second frame, you see this very wise-looking sage with a long white beard sitting on the top of the mountain. And Hagar says to him, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. In the third frame, the sage says, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. And in the fourth frame, you can see Hagar pausing and saying, is there anyone else up there I can speak to? (laughs) So renunciation doesn't seem like, you know, the coolest part of the path, right? We want the goodies and the delight and renunciation. Um, But what happens is this shift of Nibida. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. It's a shift of perspective. It's not a penance or a sacrifice. So from this nibida in this, in this um, treatise on 
transcendent dependent origination, it leads to dispassion, viraga, which is this deep equanimity, lack of lust or passion, deep equanimity. And that deep equanimity allows the mind to release into emancipation, vimuti, um, which is basically freedom, liberation, awakening. And then what's interesting as part of the patterning that I'm pointing to is this reviewing phase. Here it's um, knowledge and destruction of the taints. There's this kind of place where you have a sense, ah, this is what's not here anymore. I think it was Philip who said, kind of check in what hindrances aren't present. It's actually really instructive. What's not bothering you? We're usually so focused on what's here, we often don't review what's not here, especially if it's difficult. So this reviewing phrase, a line in the text is often done is what had to be done, this sense of the path and its completion. And this is not a kind of boastful thing, but a way of allowing the insights to be integrated into the mind-body. Um, and so this kind of alignment with what's being understood, what's being let go, what's being cultivated. Really, and in, in a really very gentle way, this is not, again, you know, a claiming, but a, a felt body sense. There's a, a great book by this Korean um, Zen master from the 12th century, Shinul, called Tracing Back the Radiance. And his whole theme is sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And he talks about realizing the mind's natural radiance, but that we have to learn to act as well as be enlightened. And he's talking about enlightenment, but we can use this for any insight that we have. How do we integrate it and act from it? Not just put it in our pockets and, you know, a badge that we can carry around, but actually let it transform us. He says that although... He has awakened to the fact that his original nature is no different from that of the Buddhas. The beginningless, meaningless, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly, and so she must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. So this bringing together of the understanding and then how we are in the world, living from what we understand, what we value what's important for us. Because the definition of insight is that it changes us in some fundamental way. And again, not doesn't have to be dramatic, completely life-changing, but the shift of perspective, we see things differently. And so the important thing we can get from all this is that the training is possible. It's been done by countless millions of people before. It's being, it is being done at this very moment by countless people in countless retreat centers and monasteries and in their lives uh, right now, and that we are blessed. We have the tools and the support, the possibility to get this kind of training. We just need to do it. And I, you know, I know the challenges of a lay life, not easy, but this possibility is here. So as we go home, as we, you know, do uh, see, step back from the immersion in the experience. These kind of patterns that I've been talking about are helpful to reflect on as part of the training, but also as we go forward. What have we cultivated here? What's been beneficial? How did, how did we do that? 
What was difficult and what did we learn from that? This is part of the, the reviewing. And then what is it like to rest in that? Again, not, you know, pride of ownership, but this alignment or integration. Perhaps it was a deepening of experiences that you already knew. Perhaps they were new experiences that revealed something you hadn't yet tasted or, or, or known about. But there's now a sense of a path or progression. We need to be clear about that. If we want opanayiko, it to be onward leading, we need to know that for ourselves. So as we leave retreat, we can find that in some ways we're even more sensitive. And it's just understandable. We've, we've secluded ourselves. It's been so quiet and peaceful here. Um, just as I said, being here in the simplicity, the nature, that, tra- that, that letting go would happen. So it's understandable. It's this sense of sensitivity. It's actually a beautiful thing to have happen. But I think you've also felt this capacity or direct experience for more non-reactivity. You know, in retreat itself, we can sometimes have, we've talked about yogi mind, where we can, you know, things can seem very big at times. But also this resilience of heart and mind. I think you've perhaps touched that. And there's a sense of calm or kindness that we've tapped into through the samatha practice, through the metta practice. We can know that. And this, is, this kindness has to begin with kindness for ourselves, as we do in the metta practice, that we can know this, that we've understood our minds a little more clearly, knowing how they work, how to support them, how to be kind to our minds so our mind can be kind towards us. It's a funny relationship we have with this mind. And we have a sense, hopefully, of the training, because that's what's onward leading that there is a path, we're on a path, and it has this direction. And as we said at the beginning, just to feel the, the power of the shared intention of all of us on the retreat, how unifying it was, how supportive it was, that we can look for that for ourselves in our own internal experience, but certainly look for it in sangha and community as we go home. And as we keep saying, you know, we don't get concentrated for concentration's sake alone. Not to be good breathers, not to have any certain experience, but to be able to take this mind and body and turn it to insight, understanding for our greater well-being in the future as development deepens. But here and now, hopefully you've tasted a little bit of that, the sense of well-being here and now. Not to, again, strengthen the ego, make any claims, but just to know for oneself this sense of ease or contentment or relaxation. And of course, as you know, even from this afternoon and the more interaction you had, you can feel the ripples of that. We can't take the quiet, the seclusion home with us. We wouldn't want to. We don't live like this. We're not renunciates. But I do think that some shift has happened in the neural pathways. You know, and again, they're doing studies that talk about the shifts that happen, the measurements they can make of things like telomeres, which demonstrate whether the body is stressed or not, and they get strengthened through meditation. 
but on some more subtle level than that. You know, if our brain waves were kind of like this at the beginning, now they're more flowing. And, you know, you'll go back and, you know, stuff will happen and they'll... But our, our baseline, I think, has changed. I have no proof of that whatsoever, apart from my personal experience. But that's what we practice for, well-being here and now. Yes, there can be some possibility of a future deepening, but here and now is what matters. Here and now is what's important. And to know that we can do this, that it's possible, that we can deepen in calm and in insight for our own welfare and benefit, but also, and just as important, the welfare and benefit of others, those we meet and interact with directly, but the ripple effect. Don't underestimate the ripple effect of you being on this retreat. The people who came by their hundreds to the day long that happened the other day, I don't know if they told them, but maybe they did, that there are a hundred people meditating up here on the hill. And that planted a seed, even in maybe one or two people. We never know what the effects will have. So we know we can do this, not just for ourselves, but for the benefit and the welfare of all beings. I want to end with a poem by Rumi. I'm, I said the other talk, I should have got a Rumi poem. He talks about this, this sense of falling in love, the beloved. And this is using, in this poem, the breath uh, as central in his love. It's called In Every Breath. And it talks about the challenge if, if there's too much, there's no I in breath. I guess that's one way of saying it. In every breath, if you're the center of your own desires, you'll lose the grace of your beloved. But if in every breath you blow away your self-claim, the ecstasy of love will soon arrive. In every breath, if you're the center of your own thoughts, the sadness of autumn will fall on you. But in every breath you strip naked just like a winter, the joy of spring will grow from within. All your impatience comes from the push for gain of patience. Let go of the effort and peace will arrive. All of your unfulfilled desires are from your greed. For the gain of fulfillments, let go of all of them and they will be sent as gifts. Fall in love with the agony of love, not the ecstasy, then the beloved will fall in love with you. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
So again, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.